You're listening to Hands-On Security, Hunter's Hands-On Security Podcast, cybersecurity of close and practical. Hello and welcome to Hands-On Security Podcast, Episode 9. My guest today is Jonathan Hanashvili. Jonathan was a SOC leader and DFIR consultant at Buxec. How are you today, Jonathan? Pretty good. Nice to be here. Nice that you're here. Uh, please tell me a little bit about yourself. So my name is Jonathan. Uh, today I'm working at Hunter's uh, Accent Team, uh, which specified in threat hunting and threat research. Uh, before that, uh, as you said, I was working as a SOC leader and DFIR consultant. For how long were you f- doing that? How long were you doing that? Uh, for the past uh, two and a half years. Okay. Um, and before that, where, where were you? Before Baxic, I was uh, uh, at Israel Air Force. Today's episode will be slightly different. Uh, Jonathan will tell us stories about his time as a SOC leader. Uh, so please lean back, take a sip of your coffee, keep doing your dishes, or have two hands on the wheel, because here we start. Thanks, Viv. So I guess the first story will be kind of a funny one, uh, not a trivial one. So... I guess it was one or two years ago. We were uh, consulting to a small enterprise uh, without specified a, a specific region country that reported about uh, one summer on uh, Linux servers that they had, which encrypted. Wait, so before, were you a team leader back then? Um, yes. Yeah, so as I said, we were consulting to this uh, small enterprise and they reported about one some on the Linux servers that encrypted uh, the production and the backup servers. Do you know how did they find it? Um, yeah, so it's a good question. Uh, they actually uh, noticed about the ransom only after one of the employees noticed that the servers was completely slow. And, and this kind of, I, I guess I love to split um, into the incidents and intrusion to two different categories. Mm-hmm. So one is an incident that uh, has an active detections. Hence, you had like a security product that uh, detects something or give you an alert about something, mm-hmm. uh, which uh, after that uh, um, comes to be a true positive. And the second one is kind of a more retroactive one, which some employee notice about something suspicious that happened. So they uh, contact you uh, uh, either as a SOC or either as a consultant, uh, external consultant to, to help them. So in this case, it was a completely uh, retroactive one. One of the employee noticed that uh, the service was really, really slow. And then they contact you? Yeah, that's right. So is it like common to see Linux ransomware? <laughs> yeah, so actually Linux ransomware by their nature is pretty pretty rare. I think that actually the big Rust families, Rust stands for ransomware as a service. Some of them had some variants lately. We saw that Arevil when they were live, had a ransomware for uh, ESXi servers specific for that, and also Hive ransomware that had ransomware that writing in Go for uh, previous DN Linux. So you see them, but not not that often like Windows servers. Yeah, yeah. But uh, if we go back, like lack of visibility, lack of uh, retroactive uh, in this kind of way, when you go back and you look at the attack, was it uh, did it make it harder for you to? Yeah, yeah, for sure. When you have like visibility gaps and you come to an incident without an actual product that logging something, it makes the incident much harder because it's moving to a phase of more forensic 
uh, investigation, when you need to extract forensic data, forensic artifacts from the operating systems. In, in case of Linux, it's even harder because there are like less uh, amount of forensic artifacts, some in the log var and uh, var log, sorry, and uh, some in the bash history and stuff, but it isn't like really uh, advanced logging that can help you to investigate it properly. So it's make it harder. And how did you manage it? What did you do? <laughs> <laughs> yes, so it's, it's a good question and it's a good question. And I think that when you come to an incident like that, you should map all the, um, start, start to search for uh, a specific uh, indicator and try to pivot from there uh, and find another artifacts. Uh, a lot of time it will, as I said, rely on forensic artifacts of the, op of the operating systems. Uh, in a lot of other cases, it will be rely on a third party programs that actually the, uh, the actor should using in order to do its stuff. Uh, but again, when I say third party uh, programs, it isn't about security products. Security products logging a lot of information, but third party programs, logging information mostly for debugging stuff so it can help you for investigation but it's not actually reliable and and have a lot of context context like security products and what was the specific apps that this organization had without uh, getting into specific uh, products and versions uh, he used some specific uh, uh, program for authentication so it helped us to uh, go over this, those logs and, and try to uh, pivot uh, what he did so it's, it's another example of logging, logging ability of third party programs that aren't security products. In a lot of time, it can give you a lot of context. And how can we prevent these gaps? So preventing these gaps can be uh, a really good, first of all, it's a really good recommendation for all the security operations out there. Uh, hunt for visibility gaps, hunt for uh, components in the environment that do not have a security stack or logging. So I guess that the best recommendation of how to do it will be to run a lot of uh, hygiene hunting, such taking uh, security products that do not rely on an agent or configurations, for example, uh, vulnerability scanner products. So um, vulnerability scanner products can um, be used to uh, scan the entire network, and then you can take some of the artifacts that identify the uh, the server or the workstation, and uh, do a cross correlation with uh, other security products, for example, ADR and stuff, and then identify some assets that do not have a proper logging or proper uh, security stack on them. And we had uh, we had a podcast episode about hunt for the next attack, and you guys can check it out. That we actually offered a few of like specific thesis about and for the next visibility gap. And I think that this is what every organization should, uh, should do. Um, but if I want to go back to the story, actually, do you know uh, a specific threat actor group that was involved in that case? Yeah. So I think that this question is actually a precise how, uh, like why this incident is so funny. So just a few like more context. The actor was in the environment for almost six months, uh, which is extremely a uh, long time. I saw like incident before that the actor was there for that amount of time, but in most of the cases, after that much uh, time, you already uh, have like crazy amount of privileges, like enterprise admin, or uh, he maybe stayed there for uh, exfiltrate data. Uh, but in this case. He was simply there because he was an amateur. 
Uh, he was an amateur and he didn't know uh, exactly what, what he's doing. Uh, and it was really funny to go over his tracks uh, along the investigation and see how he tried to do things uh, without, without successful. Uh, so for example, we saw uh, how he uh, got in with the initial access, which exploited some uh, publicly exposed server, and then two months trying to uh, uh, escalate privileges and, and move literally in the yeah, in the enterprise, but without any success. So after two months without any success, he simply disappeared. It's crazy <laughs> that that uh, we didn't see him or like them trying to getting for two months without any like yeah. suspicious or anything that pops up. Yeah, it's a really rare, rare uh, um, and unique incident. And after two months that he didn't succeed to do to do uh, stuff, he simply disappeared. He probably gave up or maybe go going to a vacation or something. I don't know. But uh, after a few months without seeing him, he uh, came back and succeed with his uh, small lateral movement, let's say. Uh, and encrypted their, uh, uh, encrypted some servers. Um, obviously everything that I'm telling is after we completed the investigation. So yeah, of course. Uh, it's all retroactive. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. What was the encryption method? So I guess that the encryption method actually emphasized how much immature the act was. Um, so we saw how we didn't actually encrypt the, the files with Binary, he simply ran an open SSL command with his RSA key and tried to encrypt it uh, that way. So without putting aside for a minute that he didn't use a binary for it, using only RSA as an asymmetric encryption for uh, ransom encryption is very rare. Like today we see a lot of improvement in the algorithms that they use. So it's mostly with a combination of asymmetric and symmetric encryption, mm-hmm. uh, mostly SALSA 20 and RSA. Uh, so the encryption will be faster and won't take a lot of resources. So for example, we spoke how the employees noticed that the server was slow and with a proper and better encryption algorithm, uh, it might not be revealed so quickly. Yeah. I want to get back to uh, the incident and understand who, who are in charge of this incident. Like, were you working with another company or was it just you? What happened there? So in this specific case, we, uh, was a large, uh, amount of, big amount of, of, uh, security specialists and a lot of, you know, executives on your head, uh, that wants to get, uh, answers, uh, fast. Mm-hmm. I will just add a note that we spoke and, you know, telling j- some joke about the, the actor and stuff. Uh, but we need to understand that every incident, even if the actor was an immature or was professional, a hammed organization uh, in a lot of perspectives. So uh, he did us a lot of troubles and the fact that he was an immature wasn't telling that he didn't any, uh, do a lot of troubles to us. Yeah, of course. So who are you working with? Um, so in this specific case, we run it uh, internally and with some uh, other security consultant uh, companies that join, join us. Uh, happens a lot of time that uh, organization uh, call a few uh, in different companies to get some uh, a lot of view of points about things and uh, make the remediation and the investigation process faster. And how how do you decide who who takes what and like what is the the way that you combine your work together? So I think that in most of the time um, the executives like uh, trying to kind of print 
what they want to achieve in a in what time, so you can put the right budget and the right amount of people uh, into it. And regarding to the specific question, it's it's really hard to work with a large amount of uh, different people because there are a lot of tasks and you cre- I can't really prioritize things well. Uh, it's kind of uh, going through the investigation and and get decisions uh, on the way. Yeah, so executive needs to really be in charge of who takes what uh, task because as you said, uh, it's really hard to understand in all of the mess. Uh, so this is like one uh, thing that we can take from this call. I don't tell them to understand everything from a technical perspective, but they sure like need to uh, be uh, a bidder and understand what is happens and uh, what what is happening uh, and simply do not leave that and, and, and think that everything will uh, be good from a technical perspective. You should yeah. be there as executives. Yeah. What kind of technical tools did you use? Uh, I think it's it's a good question because it's really changed from an incident to, to another. Mm-hmm. Uh, depend on, on the intrusion that you're investigating. It's not always one summer. But it most of the time um, rely on the log vis- logging visibility that you have yeah. that we discussed before. So yeah. So how did actually you get visibility five months ago? Did they like save the logs? Great question. So as I said before, in the retroactive approach, we're mostly looking uh, into a forensic approach taking forensic artifacts from the operating system for third-party uh, application that did record something. Mm-hmm. Again, it may be for debugging activity, not for security perspective, mm-hmm. uh, but it's still, it's still something. Yeah, I totally agree with you. Um, but like now, please tell me what are your recommendations when we talk about the IR process? So I think that every security operations these days should define an instant response process that isn't simply our words on a paper or in our case words on a confluence page or um, a Monday. It's more than that. You should define uh, and create infrastructures uh, and create your uh, and custom uh, your tools. So for example, uh, know what forensic tools did you you will uh, use when when the incident will occur uh, and customize those to the specific uh, uh, logs that uh, have your interest. And I know that it's kind of different from inter- incident to another, but it's still some general um, attributes that you should know to, uh, that you need to extract. Uh, so define your tool, understand what forensic tools that you need, create an infrastructures of a big data platforms that can take those forensic data. It can be a Splunk, it can be Elasticsearch, Snowflake, whatever, uh, and push the logs to there automatically. So when an incident will occur, you know your forensic tool, you know uh, what data platform that you do you, yeah, you will have to uh, investigate it. And those things can really save you days. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, so do it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, this is something that we always talk about that it's really important that you will have the ability to investigate, uh, um, investigate stuff that happened a while ago. Uh, so I totally agree with this statement. Um, so are there any other trends that you've seen lately regarding, uh, uh when you are working at the SOC? So another uh, interesting trend that we see a lot, uh, lately, uh, was uh, related to the Squill Waffle group. Squill Waffle. Yeah. Is it? Yeah. It's a really, okay. It's it's a funny name. I'm not sure who who defined it, but if uh, the audience uh, wants, I'm sure that you will find tons of 
blogs about it yeah. online. Also, there is one that I published previous company. So the interesting part that we, uh, the trend that we saw with Skillwaffle was actually the scale of, of them. Skillwaffle is a uh, botmasters. Uh, what is a botmaster? So botmaster, uh, is another definition that, that gave to this kind of groups by the industry. Uh, what are doing is to, uh, a compromise initial access in organizations and enterprises mm-hmm. and still those to, uh, was affiliates, so they could do them, do it with that whatever they want, uh, either exfiltrate data or to uh, encrypt the uh, encrypt the data with with a ransom. So uh, we see a lot of Skullwaffle lately, and I think that the most important things to note about this trend is yeah. the scale of it. So the most interesting part that we saw with Skullwaffle was uh, actually the scale. Thousands of thousands of attachments and new domains that compromise. They actually used a compromised WordPress and uh, cPanel uh, sites to uh, spread the the URLs. Did they target a specific industry? Um, yes, yeah, so a good question. I think that the scale that they're operating with uh, isn't related to a specific industry. They simply spread it, mm-hmm. but I spread it with some um, interesting approaches. So, for example, instead of just sending the attachment emails that they found online, they compromised emails, whether Outlook or, or GSET, and send uh, from uh, existing conversation the attachment to yeah. other uh, recipients in the organization. So more people will open the attachment. Yeah, yeah, they will open it. And again, the most interesting part about them is the scale. They're operating in a huge scale and not with some extremely unknown techniques. Like we as an industry sold those techniques with uh, Excel 4 macros uh, and 1DLL, 32exe, a lot in the past. Uh, also the, uh, the bots that they used, like the, uh, um, Trickbot or Qbot, we, we saw a lot of them, uh, before. So they didn't come up with anything new, but I think that start to realize that they shouldn't, uh, invent, invent themselves always from the beginning. They just need to spread harder, yeah. uh, send more and yeah. good things will happen for them, I guess. Did you add a case of? Catching a Qbot or a botmaster? Yeah, so we have a lot of cases uh, when we hunt uh, for those attachments uh, in our uh, SOC. And also I had an external uh, IO incident uh, when uh, we saw a successful uh, infection of Squillwaffle. So we, we saw them a lot lately. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we saw them a lot lately. And I think that the most, uh, like a, a good recommendation that I give is to hunt for, for their TTPs. Uh, try to find some patterns in the mails. They most likely, like, they, they mostly uh, use some uh, patterns in the way that they're sending their URLs. So try to catch them in the mail relays, uh, in the proxy, because they, like, you, you will clicking on a URL in order to download yeah. the, the attachment. Uh, do you have any, any specific case story from uh, this kind of incident? Yeah, so uh, without getting into specific details about organization, obviously, we saw how a successful infection of Skullwaffle happened, uh, which was with all the security stack. The organization had all the security stack, including a really good EDR. Um, and we saw how it was only detected without prevented. Yeah. Uh, and I think it's kind of a good reminder to all the security operations there that have a good security stack and think they are like, uh, 
ready, um, uh, like fully and, and 100% coverage. So the, the, the fact is that always remember that prevention and detection are completely different mechanisms and prevention uh, from an EDR perspective without getting into EDR internals and stuff, uh, it's really complicated. And in a lot of time, you see only detection without prevention uh, from a reason. And the threat actors know how to change those small things yeah. in their uh, malware in order to only make it det detectable and not preventable. So if prevention is really hard, uh, how, how would you make the detection part better? So I think that the security products doing a pretty good bug good job with detection these days. You should also keep doing your custom uh, detection mechanisms in your uh, SIM or security stack uh, because you know your organization are much better than any other products. Um, but I guess the most important part is your people because if your people will be ready when a detection will occur or detection will pop up, uh, a rapid response will uh, significant, significantly change the the impact that will happen for that incident. Yeah. Uh, so, so people, people is, is the is the future of SOC. Yeah. Yeah. So my personal vision is that uh, security operations should uh, run their uh, investigation uh, process internally. They should be combined with good security professionals, uh, either from a forensic and incident response perspective. Um, this will dramatically uh, will change the way that you will uh, respond to an incident. You should understand that I can also say it from an IR perspective that an external IR come to an incident, it takes a lot of time to start understand what happened from uh, the architecture and, and what's going on with the organization. Mm -hmm. So if you have a good security operations, you can run those incidents alone from a service perspective. You always like need a good products to work with, obviously. Uh, but learn your products, learn how to learn how to work with them, uh, train your team to be a good security experts. Uh, and this is the vision of the future SOC, like uh, not rely on external uh, services and just run it internally, whether it's an MSSP or on-prem SOC, it doesn't matter, but train your team in a way that they will be able to run the incidents. And if you don't, uh, don't act like that when you're hearing this podcast, uh, maybe uh, find about a different strategy in terms of uh, running your SOC with a better security uh, domain expertise team. Yeah, uh, and I get what you're saying. Like today... There are so many vendors that offer SOC platforms, SOC tools, uh, that you just need to choose a, a good platform, a, a good security tool, and then train your team. And if your team is not trained, it doesn't matter how many tools you will bring. It just matters uh, if they are able to use it or not. So, for example, uh, Hunter's XDR is very easy to use, uh, and it actually enhances the SOC uh, the SOC analyst, uh, abilities. And I think this is a good, uh, a, a good way to wrap up this session. Uh, thank you so much, Jonathan, for coming here. Yeah. Thanks, you. It was nice being here. It was nice. Uh, thank you very much, everyone. And, uh, until next time. Hands on this was Hands on Security. Everything you need to know about cybersecurity. Up close and practical. Ufakalidei Pika CIOIL Nivshelet Podcast Israelit.